Hey, success family and LinkedIn family. Welcome to this episode of Leadership Masterclass, where I discuss the topic of strategy with Dr. Michelle Riconshainche. She is currently the Chief Strategy and Operating Officer of Motimatic, and she's also been a founder and she carries extensive experience in the area of strategy and operations. And I've been waiting for a woman leader to talk about the topic of strategy because it is one topic that has intrigued me for several, several decades. So I just want to start off by quoting something that I read about strategy in a book which says, a company has a strategy for two reasons. One, it's to capture a new market or to prevent competition from cap capturing any existing or new markets. That is all. Strategy is that simple. If in the end a strategy does not achieve any of this, it is just theory, right? So I just have a lot of questions on whether Michelle agrees with me or not, or what is her take on strategy. But let's jump right into the session. Michelle, happy to have you on this show. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. And it's a great quote. And I think one of the things about quotes is they will often drive a point home by oversimplifying, right? So there's truth in that. And then there's a lot more nuance when you get into the details. And so I would say when it comes to strategy, there are a lot of ways to win, right? And that could certainly mean a focus on maintaining your position. It might mean gaining a larger market share and becoming the leader. There's also the category of creating a new market, which is increasingly yeah. the way that companies are succeeding. So in practice, yes, you're always looking to lead in some way, but you need to take a number of factors into account to create a meaningful strategy that delivers results. Right. Yes. Okay. All right. You set the tone for the conversation, I guess. So let me drive into my questions, right? Why do organizations need a strategy office, right? The concept of a strategy office in the C-suite is relatively new. And the value it brings to the C-suite is relatively fuzzy, right? I mean, there are a lot of people that still question their existence. Is it just, uh, is it just talk, right? What does strategy really mean? Please explain this for us. Absolutely. So it's true. It's a relatively new role. And I think even if you Google it, you'll see, well, it's not really clear what it means. I think it's helpful to think about the creation of any new office as a response to a changing business landscape and context, right? It's, it's not that companies woke up one day and said, let's add a new role. Instead, we're seeing a solution arise in response to a perceived need. So companies are recognizing that they need someone to take on responsibilities today that don't neatly fit into conventional titles. And I think the organic nature of this shift is a really good evidence of this. Most CSO hires are internal, right? There might be somebody who naturally starts to take on this role in the business, or perhaps based on successes is invited to broaden that scope of his or her purview. In my case, we were actually looking to align my title to the contributions I was making. Um, and I think this perceived need is also driven by changes in the business landscape. The context of business has evolved and it demands changes in the ways that companies navigate their way to success. For example, the pace of decision-making is faster, right? It requires making sure you have the information available in real time. You need to be able to guide a team through operational changes and adjustments without losing momentum and motivation. Okay, that's a very sensible answer, right? I mean, so I really liked it when you put it this way. 
I mean, the, the office was created to give a definition to what you were doing, right? So now going back into what I think strategy is, it is meaningless if it does not result in maintaining your leadership position in the market, or it removes someone else from the leadership position and put yourself on top of it. Do you agree your views? Is that how strategies are anchored? That is a great question. Um, I think we said that there are a lot of ways to win, right? And some of the things you need to consider are the sector you're in, your current performance as a business, the total available market. But more importantly, you need to start off with what stage of company are you? What is it you're trying to achieve as a business, right? Because if you're in growth mode and increasing top line revenue is your goal, you're going to approach your strategy in a certain way and it's going to take a certain shape. If you're focused on profitability, it will look different. Or maybe you're still dialing in your product market fit, right? So, for example, if you are in growth mode, you need to assess your strongest opportunities for expanding your business. And that might look like a bigger footprint within your current client base, right? It could also mean bringing on new logos. Probably it means both and you need to strike the right balance. Um, it could also mean taking what you already do to another vertical and growing there. So there are lots of ways that that strategic focus takes shape. And so that's why I said earlier that to cast those large buckets of either you're becoming the leader or you're maintaining your leadership, it's not that it's not true, but the reality is much more nuanced. And I want to add another um, point about this, which is that there's a sense that that quote is pitting a leadership position against removing someone else, right? In practice, replacing a leader, that is a really big lift. It also carries more risk. So if you're going to place your bet there, you need to take a lot of factors into consideration. And while you can aspire to be number one, in practice, you have to start smaller, right? It's not a straight line from launching your business to being number one. So what are the interim steps? And as you move along that path that you lay for yourself toward being number one, you're going to learn things. You're going to discover unanticipated dead ends, and that will help you to move forward. Um, I have an example from the current company I, I'm working at here, Modomatic. If you had asked me three years ago what our best strategy was for growth, I'd have said new verticals are the way forward. And at the time, we were piloting a couple of new verticals. But as we moved into those spaces, we discovered blockers to implementation that were going to be really hard to overcome and were not in our control. And at the same time, we made some changes to how we were pricing our product and where we sold into our clients' uh, organizations. We adopted a pay-only-for-results model. We opened our solution to enrollment leaders. Monomatic is a higher-ed solution. And our business started to grow exponentially. So in this case, the strategic move was actually a pivot or a doubling down and where we were seeing success um, rather than pressing on into new verticals. And so if we go back to that question of, is it maintaining your leadership or becoming number one? Um, in our case, we are a unique solution in the space, but I wouldn't say that we thought about our growth in that way. We thought about growth or our strategy as where can we grow our business? And that could look like expanding into a new vertical even as a smaller 
solution, or it can mean becoming a bigger leader in one space. So I don't think it's either or. I think you really need to stay light on your feet, especially in a startup context. Got it. Okay. How does strategy influence revenue? Do you focus on new revenues um, or it is just the market leadership and more of, you know, capturing, uh, creating new markets or capturing uh, markets that are still left untapped? And does it always tie into revenue? Is strategy revenue focused or it is more towards, um, you know, a bigger goal such as market leadership? That's a really interesting question. I think strategy takes a variety of forms. One of, as I was thinking about our conversation ahead of time, I was thinking about even the role that culture plays in the organization and how being able to execute strategy, especially as it evolves over time, requires you to have built a culture mm -hmm. that can move with you over time. So when we think about influencing revenue or the role that strategy plays in revenue, there's an important consideration there around the culture that you build so that as you see the new through line, as you as that view opens up in front of you, like it always does when you're on a journey, that your team is there and ready to move together toward the adjustments you might want to make to your goals. And I do think that ultimately it's about revenue, but revenue can mean adding bigger value to your clients right? Yeah. Um, it can mean, yes, things like new logos, new spaces, and so on. But I think there are lots of ways that strategy influences revenue, the sort of the indirect effects. So one of them is culture. Um, strategy can translate into operations. That's my role is both, right? So it's what are we trying to accomplish, but also how do we accomplish it in practice? Uh, so I think there's a number of factors there. There's okay. one more other thing I wanted to make about strategy, which relates to revenue. I think at the end of the day, strategy is fundamentally about intentionality, right? And it's about being aware that you are making choices in how you focus your team and how you operate and how you set your long-term options as a business. So you can do a lot. You can spend your days being very busy. You can have a team that's very committed and working really hard, streamline your processes, crank out deliverables. But a successful business needs to align those efforts to your goal with intentionality. Where are you placing your bets? What direction and initiatives are most likely to lead to a successful outcome? And how are you defining success? So I think those are the ways that strategy helps to ensure that you're achieving your revenue goals, being intentional, being explicit about what's going to matter so that all the, the various teams can align their focus and their efforts toward that same goal. And that's where we also tap back into culture. So those pieces all really fit together. So I take it that it's not just revenue, but a much larger picture of how everything aligns together and driving towards um, you know, your financial and market goals. So what other areas of the C-suite uh, that you know uh, strategy has an influence or a say on? Do you have a say on product? Do you have a say on customer success? Do you have a say on business, et cetera? What other functions do you actually have, you know, a touch point or interlock with? Absolutely. As you mentioned earlier, the role is very new. And so it, I think it does take many different shapes in different organizations and companies. But a common factor is the ability to be highly cross-functional, right? So absolutely, someone in a strategy role needs to be effective in working across the company. And this takes a, a few 
um, a few flavors. There's a, there's a few dimensions or, or uh, faces to this. One is really bringing empathy for the challenges that each team and the company will experience, right? In my case, personally, I'm a doer. And so my focus is on how we implement our work. So I work closely in a collaborative way with sales, but I'm not running that organization. And it's important for me to be empathic towards the kinds of challenges that an SDR is going to face when they pick up that phone day after day, right? Or that others in that team are going to experience so that I can also, um, you know, generate both the communication of our strategy, but also bring their considerations in to how we're going to move forward. So that empathy is really critical for success. And um, so that's the first point. A second is that businesses are complex machines. And so the ways that strategy influences are in part by seeing and understanding the inner workings of that machine, understanding how they come together to generate different outputs and results as a business so that you understand that by tweaking this one thing over here, you affect something at the other end, right? So I think that that ability to look holistically and to understand how the pieces connect and affect one another is really important. And then I kind of touched on this a moment ago, but you need to engage effectively with people on your team who are bringing a unique vantage point because the bigger you get, the more you really need to rely on the expertise of those who have different views on how the business is operating so that together you can pull together what you're hearing and observing to lead to success. So I think that that influence is critical in this role. And the way you bring about changes is to start from those points and then to execute in ways that generate buy-in, that give people reasons for change. We are not creatures of change, we're creatures of habit. And so when you want to ask for change, uh, you need to generate that buy-in and being listened to is important, right? To, to get on board with change. And then coming back, like we said earlier, to culture, that culture is key to being effective cross-functionally and to influencing the business um, broadly. Got it. Okay. All right. Um, so what are, uh, so what does it take to get to the position of a chief strategy officer? What prior experience have you had uh, that any new aspiring candidate that wants to drive strategy for organization should bring to the table? Well, as we said, it's a new role and the research shows that I think it's 85% of people are internal hires and there, there's yeah. a lot of variety in how people get to this role. Um, so while there's not a lot of commonality in the actual paths people take, I think there's, there's some examples. For instance, um, a consulting background can be helpful. The, what's interesting about or important about a consulting background is you've had, again, that vantage point where you get to see lots of examples. And my background is in learning science and how we learn. And one of the ways we learn patterns is by seeing lots of examples. It's really hard to extract a general pattern if you've only had one or two examples to go from. But if you had had exposure to tens or, or more examples, you can start to notice how do teams operate? What does a healthy business look like, right? And so it's with that variety that you can more easily um, detect patterns and then utilize those patterns to be effective. I think that's an important one. And then I think there's a lot of ways to arrive at this position. If we've talked about some of the characteristics that naturally lend themselves, so that ability to 
see the through line. If you've ever done some mountain biking or any other sport that requires you to see where you're going to, you know, set yourself, skiing is similar. Um, being able to see the through line is important and that that might just come naturally. Uh, it might be something you develop over time. I think innovation and curiosity are important because yeah. strategy is often about seeing how we might do things differently, right? You wouldn't really need the role if it were obvious what had to happen next. Yeah. And lastly, able to execute, right? You can have all the vision in the world, but if you can't also lead the team to execute. So examples of taking new initiatives and actually executing them to success is also a helpful prior experience to have. Okay. Just, I'm going to ask you a question from out of, uh, uh, you know, just, it just came to my mind. Let's say you're given a charter uh, to design a strategy for approaching a completely new market, which you have not ventured into at all, right? Mm -hmm. So you're asked to come up with a strategy. How do you go about it? Like, what is there a process? Is there a framework that you follow? Uh, can you help us through one day in your life where you are putting together a strategy for a, for a specific uh, problem statement? How do you go about it? Sure. I always start, I have an, a background that's very, turns out to be very relevant, which is in product evaluation or, mm. or program evaluation. And I developed a number of frameworks here that I find apply very well in the strategy space as, as well. So we talked about intentionality before, and it's so easy, even among the, you know your strongest players, to start from what we're going to go do instead of what ultimately we're trying to accomplish so that we can, again, be very intentional and thoughtful and explicit about the inputs we're going to put into our operation to generate certain outputs. So I always like to start from what does success look like? How are we going to define it? What will it look like if we're achieving it? And importantly, especially because many strategies are going to lead to results that are quite a ways down the road, you need to think through what the interim markers of success will look like, right? If we're on the right path, what are we going to see at the one month mark or the one quarter mark and beyond? And that allows us to either adjust those milestones as we go, as we learn, and to understand whether we are indeed on that right path, right? So I think that's that's where I always start. And then from there, I like to really understand what's currently being done. What are you seeing as the friction points? Can we connect the dots from what's currently being done to where you're trying to go? It's also very important to the extent that the work is already in progress, because that means people are working to figure out how do you leverage what's there, right? Um, both for the human motivation part, because running a company successfully also means retaining your talent, right? Yeah. So you don't want to change things up or have people feel like their work hasn't been valued. So leveraging what's been done uh, is also an important component. But I find that that program evaluation framework has a lot of application here. What are you trying to accomplish? What are your expectations about milestones along the way? And then what are the actions you are planning to generate those milestone accomplishments? So the more, again, you're intentional and you're articulating that, the more you have something you can check in on and adjust as you need. I think that articulation is really important because if it remains implicit, then you can't align around it as a group. You yeah. can't more, you can't easily see where you're on or off track. That is true. Who approves your strategy? Like who has the uh, final authority to approve a strategy that a CSO offers? Is it with a CEO or... Uh... Or do you get to present to the board as well? Or, you know, how does the entire approval process work? 
Interesting. Yes. Great question. I think that's going to depend a lot on the particular company, right? How do you operate already together? And um, also the magnitude of the change you're trying to make, right? If it's a massive pivot of the company, you probably wouldn't let the board know about it. Uh, if it's a more internal operation, you know, or you want to explore some bets, probably doesn't go to the board first off. Um, in my case, I'm fortunate to have a, an excellent working relationship with the CEO. So he and I generally um, are, are looking at that strategy together. But that said, you know, increasingly operating out of authority is not the way things go, right? You need to generate buy-in. So we are very um, open, transparent culture here. And we know that that's really important for everyone coming on board when we say, hey, hey guys, uh, we're going to do this thing now. <laughs> and we, we're excited for y'all to come along, but that needs to be done in a way that, again, helps everyone to feel valued. That's part of what people are expecting from their work experiences now. So um, the decision might, certainly it's going to involve people in the these leadership roles, but it also needs to involve the broader team from a, a buy-in and a commitment point of view. Got it. And then what is your whole focus on AI and automation, right? I mean, there are a lot of uh, functional areas are now taking the help of uh, chat GPD, right? Though mm -hmm. starting from programming to marketing, et cetera. So is strategy also taking the help of AI? Um, do you, do you, are you pivoting towards that? I love this question. I've, I've spent the last, the three decades of my career innovating with technology and it is amazing how, regardless of the specifics, there's a consistent pattern to the introduction of new technologies. As you and many of your listeners know, there's always the hype that accompanies any new tech, right? And this is important. We're not creatures of change. Like we said, we're creatures of habit. So to motivate potentially valuable changes, we need the hype. We need to feel moved and excited and maybe even a little afraid to be open to change. Another repeating pattern is the adoption flow, right? There'll be some early adopters and then you'll get your people in the middle and eventually your, your last hanger honors who are reluctant to change. But this is where strategy comes in. So I'm actually going to engage with your question at a more of a generalizable approach, which I think is also hopefully helpful to your, um, your listeners. When there's a new technology, it's really important to be intentional because you need to balance the hype with the real opportunity that this technology presents to your particular business and your market. And you also need to weigh the realistic timelines for delivering to your market. I think AI is especially challenging in this regard because it's moving so fast, right? We are clearly in the hype stage. Companies are scrambling to add AI to their branding. Now everyone's an AI company. Um, and there's certainly value there and there will be value there. At the same time, if you're in the strategy seat, you need to take a very objective approach to distinguishing the hype from the real, real value to your business. So in some cases, the value is clear and present. Right. If you have a, a steady state solution, kind of, let's say, an old school solution that is easily replaceable or improved upon by AI, the competition is already coming up fast in your rearview mirror. And you need to refit your solution quickly to leverage those technologies, especially if, you're, you're, if your work can be um, done with let's say the, like the low hanging fruit in the, in the capabilities of the new technologies, right? There's a lot of promise about all the amazing things AI will do for us. There's a thing, it's the things that it's doing today. And if your business can be done by the, the capabilities today of AI, you probably want to move quickly. 
But in contrast, if you're in a space that's more driven, let's say, by a bespoke human interaction, or if you're already doing a lot with the available data, whether it's to make predictions or to optimize what you're doing, you want to take probably a more considered approach to the adoption of AI. We also don't know where it's going to land. It's changing so quickly that if you place your bets on what's happening this week, you're going to be behind very quickly. So there is this challenge of, of pacing your adoption to the changing um, of that technology. I have some more thoughts on this. I'm not sure if you want to continue on this path around technology or move on to other questions. Um, because uh, one more thought for you, which is that new technologies present challenges to educating your, your key stakeholders. Right? So if you're in a strategy seat, it's very possible that you're interacting with someone in leadership who's also very excited by the hype about the new solution and just wants that thing. It's a shiny thing. Everyone's excited about it and they want their business to be part of this. Yeah. And um, so part of what's important is understanding what is that real value and potential for your business? What are the risks there so that you can properly educate your key stakeholders and leadership to stay aligned to your vision and hold realistic expectations for that technology? Got it. Okay, perfect. So are you starting to use um, chat GPT for real? Like, you know, are you, because I I have seen companies that are, you know, having marketing content uh, to be created by chat GPT and they just take the base, um, you know, make some course corrections and then publish it, right? So is, is it actually gotten into your office? Like, do you, have you started using it um, for actually your work? So at Motomatic, it's an interesting question, especially because we are doing marketing to our, you know, our client base. We also, at our core, we produce ads that we serve to students yeah. to help them stay engaged with their education. So we're we're creating content both for uh, students as well as for our clients. And we have uh, we operate from a, a rich behavioral science and motivation science framework. And I would say that the content we're producing, the quality of that content is um, much more, I would say the quality of the content we're producing is much higher than anything we're getting out of any of the, the AI tools right now. Okay. But that said, uh, I believe that our content team, we're using some of those tools as a sounding board, right? You can throw a phrase in your, your copy for your image. You can throw that in and get some variations that help to inspire you to iterate. But we're seeing that right now, the quality of content that we need to produce to drive the results we're looking for are still really benefiting from the expertise we have on that content team. It's similar for our marketing approach. Um, you know, we're doing something that is highly grounded that was an interesting combination. Uh, our marketing work is also content that we are writing, sometimes with little assistance, but we're doing something pretty unique. And so we don't want to hand that off to a machine right now because we can see that the result of that is not as strong as the perspective we're bringing to our content production. Okay. How is the success of your office determined, right? I mean, how are you measured? What are the results that you are measured against? Right. Well, ultimately, it's a success of the company, right? At the executive level, 
you really own the outcome regardless of what's explicitly on your plate. And yeah. so, um, which some level goes back to culture, right? Yeah. Uh, it's not, well, it wasn't my job. It's, it's all of our jobs. Uh, that said, some of the markers of success include you know, identifying and deploying new initiatives, having a well-articulated strategic plan and executing to that, generating actionable learnings for the company is also really important, especially a company like Motomatic where we're in growth phase, um, especially when initiatives don't go to plan because they, they won't always, especially when you're exploring and innovating, things won't work out exactly how you intended them. And so you need to be able to learn and then act on the learnings that happen from that. So those are some examples, um, but right now it's really the, the success of the company is ultimately the the marker. Okay, okay. And there's some, um, I mean, one example of a strategy that you uh, defined and which uh, which really yielded success that you're really proud of and worth sharing with the audience. Absolutely. I have one example from some prior work, uh, which was uh, work we were doing to innovate around game-based learning and assessment. And the whole reason for exploring games as a vehicle for assessing learning rather than your fill in the dot multiple choice tests was the idea that those those multiple choice tests weren't doing a, a great job of really capturing what students had learned. So the reason for the initiative was to explore how games could offer a richer view into what students had understood. But when we would go to get this uh, these games adopted, schools would want to know if they improved test scores. So it was a really um, interesting loop there. So strategically, what I introduced was, well, look, we're going to innovate in how we approach assessment using these games. But as we do that, we're going to choose specific test items because they release them. So you have examples of released items that you can work from. We're going to make sure that we also increase those scores yeah. so that since we know that's an objection that's going to come from our potential adopters, let's get ahead of that. Let's design so we can say, absolutely, we improve those scores. And not only that, we're adding in the richer skills like problem solving and collaboration. So that was a really important strategy that helped us to, um, to overcome objections by adopters and to get our, our work out there in, in the field at scale. Okay. Have you missed any goals? Like, you know, has any of your strategies backfired and, and you didn't really, uh, you know, result in success? Any such experience that you've had? I, I had um, one, I mean, certainly there's lots of variety of examples of bigger or smaller, but I would say one really interesting learning or important learning point for me was we had in the same company around assessment, we had um, innovated and collaborated you know, with some really important uh, players in the assessment space. And we created this game that very effectively taught this, this complex thinking skill set. And we, we were able to really improve students' capabilities there in a short time frame. And when we handed our, we have statistically significant results to our marketing team, they said, what does that mean? How is a parent going to absorb that? And it was an important learning for me because I realized that I hadn't designed that initiative for that stakeholder. I realized I hadn't designed that initiative for the stakeholder. And we went back to the drawing board at that point and said, how do we make this a metric that will resonate with our stakeholders? And we came up with a way of thinking, um, thinking about the progress in terms of years in school. So students were able to make nine months of progress and just two weeks of gameplay. 
right? So a metric that made sense, it's impressive, and we could back it with the data. So that was both a miss, but also a, a learning that really informed how I've taken the work forward. I now I always start not just with the stakeholder, but what form of claim will I need to make to influence or to compel my stakeholders toward um, toward the next action or to show them that we've succeeded? Great. All right. I mean, that's, that was a very, 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 I mean, great uh, uh, overview of, you know, what a strategy office does with some real world examples and, you know, how it all ties into the C-suite and the overall success of the organization. So thank you for that. Now, I mean, we would like to go on to a rapid fire session where we would like to understand about Michelle as a person, right? Because I firmly believe that people relate more to leaders that they also know a little bit of personal side of, right? So are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So you're off to the moon and you're likely never coming back. What is that one thing that you will take with you? Well, if the thing can be a person, I will take my husband. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as for things that are, are not people, um, if I could get real creative, maybe a phone that could dial back to earth. But among my current belongings, I'd have to choose between uh, my piano, my bike, um, and my baking supplies, and uh, maybe my sewing machine. So I, I'm a DIY person and my power tools. So... Mm. I think I'd be challenged not to be able to make stuff on the moon. So I'd be, whether it's music or things, I'd be looking to do that in some way. Great, great. Okay, what's your non-star? Like, what is it that one thing that you always align whatever you do with or your value or whatever, right? Like, what is your non-star? What do you look up to? Absolutely. You know, I think my North Star has evolved over time and I've gotten to a much simpler place. My North Star these days is my internal meter, right? There's lots of ways to be happy or to be fulfilled, whether it's professional or personally, but I've learned that I really need to pay attention to whether I'm in a good place and, and noticing that, noticing if I've taken an off round, right? If I'm noticing that I'm getting really cranky at the coffee shop, right? That to me, I have to notice, hey, what's going on here? You know, yeah. why Why am I? And, and making sure that I then um, notice that and take stock so I can work my way back to um, where I'm fulfilled and in that good space. It's it's always there to be found. It's often just the attitude that I'm bringing to my context that needs the adjustment. Okay. So you're in a room and you're, you're um, you know, you're not in a room and a lot of people that know you are talking about you. What is that one thing that they are about to say about you? Like your USP or a brand value? Oh, Michelle, she's this. What are they likely to say? Well, I'd like to be a fly on that wall one day, but um, I'd say that um, if we're talking about a work context, I would hope they'd say that I'm able to see that through line to success quickly, to empower the team toward that goal while holding a very high bar for delivery. Nice. Okay. So what did young Michelle in her 20s wanted to do? And are you living that what you dreamed of? Kind of. I In my 20s, I thought I'd be a software engineer. Mm. And I started career off in that way. Um, and I still get to work with engineers. So in that way, I get to still live that dream. But ah. it's been fun to play that out on a bigger, um, bigger platform. Okay. So a bunch of college graduates, all with the same academic background, come to you for a role in your team. 
based purely on soft skills, who among them is likely to win that job? Absolutely. Those soft skills are very important and it is one of the key things we're looking for. Mm. Um, it's a few things. It'll be a combination of taking initiative, learning quickly from feedback and being humble, operating with authenticity and being a true team player. Mm. Okay. Okay. So everyone looks up to mentors and inspirations in life, right? Who's your inspiration? I've had been very fortunate to have had many mentors um, early out of college and, and then since then. Um, early on, uh, my mentor was a woman who was really a pioneer in the world of educational technology um, and was important in my early years. I would say most recently, my coach, Lori, has been an incredible support and guide. And then my husband and I are both in this tech startup sector, so we spend a lot of time and uh, I benefit a lot from his point of view. We always joke that we're able to give each other much better advice than we take or we actually execute on our own. Nice, nice. And so if you were to do all over this, all over again, what is that one thing that you will not do? And what is that one thing you will definitely continue to do? Um, what, uh, well, I would definitely have still moved to California when I did. Uh, I feel like I found my my home here and the opportunity to um, to meet collaborators that I could do great work with. Um, I think I would have been a little more intentional about my career. I've had a, a really interesting path, but it's been, um, I sometimes wonder if I had set some goals earlier on, if I might've been in a different place, but um, I am really happy where it's led me. So I guess it, it has worked out in the end. Yeah, okay. So any final parting quote thoughts that you would share with our listeners before we say bye? Maybe just a word on the role that startups have in mm -hmm. the, the uh, surfacing of this role of strategy. I think what's interesting about the startup environment, and I think startups in turn have affected how bigger companies operate, is that they, they work on much shorter cycles. And I think that's part of why we see this strategy role being so important, because if strategy is something you're setting once every couple of years, you don't necessarily need a, a role for it. But if it's something you're doing on a weekly, monthly, quarterly basis, then you do need someone who's thinking about it and is able to um, you know, take that view, point the ship in the right direction and guide it to the destination. Um, if you've ever been in a boat or similar kinds of vessels, you know that small movements generate big results and uh, yeah. you can easily oversteer, right? And so I think strategy has to do with that dynamic ability mm. to guide and to not oversteer or understeer. And it's a something that as those cycles and decision cycles happen in shorter timeframes, you need someone who's dedicated yeah. to that in the company. Yeah. yeah. And I think establishing a new role, it takes courage. Right. So Absolutely. introducing this role is a, it's an expression of companies being brave and open to rethinking how they've always done things so that yes. they continue to succeed. All right. All right, Michelle, thank you very much. That was a wonderful session on strategy and also revealing a little bit of your personal side with us. I hope you enjoyed um, talking to us today. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure.